guys, it's summertime. There are 25 degrees outside. The sun is shining and you are at your desk having a Zoom call with me. What is wrong with you? I'm actually on my sofa. Ah, okay, that makes it better. Okay, cool. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano. And I'm your co-host, Anastasia. That sounded awful. Now, before we start, a special call to action to a lovely audience. We will be recording an episode where we will be discussing PhD life, as in how it is to be a PhD student. And so we would like to hear from you guys. Yeah, I mean, specifically you. So if you're a PhD student yourself and you go on our website, sciencebasement.org slash episodes, and you scroll down, you'll find the big yellowish button that says, tell us about your PhD. Click on that and record your 60 second answer. We will be collecting all the answers from our audience and we will be discussing it together as a team in a future episode. Anyway, we will spam this on all our social media. So keep an eye out for that. Okay, now back to our episode. Today, we have a very different episode for you. I mean, it's a team episode. So it means that we don't interview anyone. It's just us, some members of the Science Basement podcast team, chatting about science stuff. And what we're talking about today. Well, it's summertime. Some people go on holiday. Everyone wants to enjoy the sun, except for me. Sip a cocktail and talk about science communication, right? Isn't that what everyone wants to do? At least we want to do that. So we thought, why not doing this in front of the microphone, but without the sun and no cocktail? So welcome, Eliana. Welcome, Tomas. Welcome, Anastasia. How are you today? Yeah, no, not bad. Good. I'm uh, hugging a fan at the moment. And, You're hugging uh, a fan. Fred. I can't see the sun from my window because I see clouds, but I can definitely feel its heat. Right. Okay. Well, I'm definitely uh, close to vampire because since a month at least of uh, summer holidays, I'm still as white as in winter. That's the that's the fate, <laughs> the sad fate of graduate students. I mean, or no, it's just the fact that we live in the north, and yeah. uh, it takes way longer for our bodies to to tan even True. under the sun. True. Okay, guys. So you know what we're going to talk about today. Yes. So shall we go, yes. should we just dive straight into? Now, first question, just to set the mood of the episode. Anastasia, how would you define science communication? Well, thank you for asking me this question. You're welcome. Sorry, I'm a little bit <laughs> awkward. It's my first time. But okay, yeah. Um, well, to me, it's first and foremost delivering scientific information in a very clear and understandable way to a person you're talking to. So it doesn't really have to be a non-scientific person. It actually applies also to your scientific peers because surprise, surprise, not always do we understand what other scientists are doing. And sometimes so we true. require as much explanation as an, a non-scientific person. And in my opinion, also by making something understandable, this should in a way trigger curiosity of people to this topic 
And that's what I usually notice that if people don't understand, they don't ask questions. And, and it's a sad part because they also tend to internalize this thinking that, oh, it's my fault and uh, maybe it's something wrong with me or they just uh, move on and, and forget about it and like let, let it go, which is not exactly the right thing. So to me, those, those three aspects, making it clear, understandable, and raising curiosity is what really matters. Yeah, I think scientists internalize implicitly or subconsciously, they internalize this really well. As in, if you attend a scientific lecture and then at the end of the talk, you have no questions, usually people are not relieved. People are quite embarrassed because they know that no questions from the audience means that you kind of, yeah. Exactly. It means like they, like they didn't understand me. Or did, did, was my topic so boring and uninteresting? It's actually, I agree with you, Julian. The answer is yes, it was. I think, Anastasia, you, you gave a really good um, sort of definition. And I think that something that you raised that is really important is making science exciting and like raising curiosity and sort of like making it understand that it's not only about the things that we know, but the things that we don't know as well. Um, I think that so you, you Tomas, you would include also in the definition of science communication, you would also include raising the, 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 the fascination, the curiosity, you would include that in the definition of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's a, it's a really important thing of uh, trying to bring, it's a, it's a key part of me in trying to bring interest into the domain of science, like it's, um, and making things not only understandable, but also exciting and interesting are, are really really important so yeah i think that it's a key part of science communication usually when i attended uh, this science communication course or you know a lecture about it there's always this point where oh you have to explain to people why it's uh, it's useful you have to explain to people why they care and i agree i mean that's very important but then i think when i was a kid I used to watch these documentaries for hours and hours. And I remember I never needed to know how a lion mates. Yet those documentaries made it extremely fascinating. So I agree with you, Thomas. Like, I think there must be in science communication this element of awe, you know, just this is just beautiful per se, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Okay, we, I think we kind of agreed, everyone, on, on the definition of science communication, right? Like uh, delivering information to actually any type of, like it could be peer, like as in scientists to scientists, because again, not all scientists know all the science. So there can easily be a conversation around two scientists where they don't understand each other and scientists to, you know, towards someone who's not a scientist. And and I love that you brought up this, um, Thomas, like delivering this sense of fascination and curiosity, even just per se. Yeah. There's one thing that you said that I sort of disagree, that you, you said that, oh, you, you have to mention why it's uh, a particular thing is useful. And I would disagree in that tiny small detail that I don't think that's everything. Like, I, I feel that sometimes science communicators fall into the trap of, oh, we need to tell people why this is useful. I think that the it being interesting is a lot more important than showing why it's useful because there are certain things that are not necessarily useful. And so I think that that is uh, sort of a thing to bear in mind as, as science communicators. 
In my opinion, uh, science communication is multifaceted. It's one for the people to make them excited, interested in science without necessarily delivering something that we think it's interesting because, okay, we cannot know what interests everybody. But at the same time, um, okay, it doesn't necessarily has to be useful. Sometimes it has to be entertaining, but it also depends on the audience you target. Because as scientists, we also need to remember that science communication is an integral part of our job. It's not something we do separately as a hobby, because that's a misconception we have so far. But in my opinion, science communication is an integral part of a scientist's job to disseminate the knowledge, because we also depend on the people who then um, uh, for or, or are the forcing hand of stakeholders deciding whom to whom they will give uh, money to continue doing research. And from that perspective, also sharing useful information and special information that is fundamental for this society, needed for this society, um, is also um, important for our own. Uh, uh, survival and sustainability as scientists and researchers. Thank you, Lynn. Actually, I absolutely agree with what you just said. And I actually came up with the question in return. Would you actually say that we should maybe include science communication as a compulsory part of our curriculum as scientists? Because uh, so far it's been only like writing papers, which is very strict scientific writing or writing grants, which of course everybody will go voluntarily because you want to fund your science. But I think there's something missing in scientists understanding the actual importance of promoting this, not just to people who give you money or your own peers who read your papers, but also to people who will basically benefit from what you do. Because what we do, we do this for people, not just for ourselves. I'm super happy that you brought this up because I get the chance to disagree. I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a very nice, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. I disagree with the compulsory thing because I think, I mean, as a science com, communication lover, I, you know, I, I would sign, and I did, I am signing up to any kind of courses on science communication. However, I don't think it should be compulsory because scientists already have a lot to do. So if someone is not interested in doing science communication, I, should, I think they should have the right to leave it to someone who's interested in doing it. Um, I, I don't feel it should be forcing people because someone once say, I, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to, because I wanted to do my science. I wanted to do my research. I'm not interested in communicating, not because I don't think it's important, but because this is just not what I want to do. I want someone else to do it. And I think that's when possibly like in an ideal world that I'm imagining, a science communicator would be a profession, as in you let the scientists who are not interested in doing the communication doing their research, and then you have a, a scientist or someone who has a scientific training, a scientific background, that because of their passion and their vocation, they specialize in science communication. And they do that for the scientists who just want to do the research. This is just my view, like this vision of it. Yeah, I think that I, there are some elements of, of truth, quote, quote unquote, uh, in, in both sides. I think that it should be brought up earlier, probably. As in make people aware, like students may be aware that that's also a thing. Yeah, mm. exactly. So it, it's, I think that it's, that it should be sort of put in the curriculum, but earlier on, say, uh, in your master's or bachelor's, where you're, you're aware that this exists and then, and that it's, it's a way of communicating rather than just simply 
the you have the oh we can go to academia or you can go to the industry or you can just leave science i think that it's it should be brought up earlier on i do agree that it shouldn't be compulsory in especially in later stages the specialization i think that you can like it's an option let's say like i don't think i agree that not everyone is good at communicating what they do um and that some people are exceptionally good at uh, at uh, communicating so but i don't think that they necessarily need to only do that so i think that in that sense it's it can be a plastic thing in just of how people organize themselves maybe if i share a piece of my mind and how i see things i believe that uh, um, making something compulsory and uh, being forced upon people will never work of them enjoying doing it so in that sense i agree with giuliano but i believe that we need to start shifting um the uh, community's mind on the topic for, for various reasons. Uh, I believe that, uh, I agree with Tomas, at a bachelor's course, for example, we do learn how to make a, a poster or a presentation or how to understand a scientific manuscript, but not all of us doing the bachelor's will end up needing these skills for science per se, but these are skills we can apply to other things. It's soft skills. So learning how to communicate what you work on, whether it's science, engineering, fixing a car uh, in your garage, it's a skill. It's a skill of sharing uh, your um, expertise um, in, a, in an understandable manner. And so these kind of soft skills, it's good to obtain. Uh, it's not that we pass it on as um, you learn science communication because you have to do it. At the same time, um, for example, people don't have to do science communication or public outreach uh, where they interact with uh, people outside academia. But what we don't understand is that we do science communication when we are researchers, especially at an advanced level, all the time to our colleagues in the office where we explain them our work and they might not be directly familiar with it. When we go to a conference, when we write a grant application, we need to explain our science to fellow peers who might have the same or less knowledge or more like experts. We also share it to, uh, or share the, um, disseminate the knowledge to, uh, stakeholders who will decide whether they will fund our next project. And to do all these things, you need to have a training on how to communicate science. And some of us might take that training to the next level and be professional science communicators, like Giuliano said, but it doesn't necessarily has to be that we divide I am a scientist and I am a science communicator. It's a separate job. Sometimes it's one and the same thing in in my opinion i'd also like to add that i think if a person feels like they're a bit disappointed in their own project or they feel a bit anxious about doing what they do because let's admit like sometimes our work can fall into uh, this endless routine or with so much stress you can just fall into the problem of lack of enthusiasm but I think to me, at least, in some way, it did return on interest to what I do. 
I think sharing it with others who are completely unrelated to what you usually do, who have no idea about this topic and, and seeing their appreciation or at least uh, some respect to your job will restore those levels of energy that you might be missing and restore those emotions that might have been buried under all the papers and experiments and your lab books. And uh, yeah, I think at least once a scientist should try to, to communicate science this way. I, th I think you made a, that's a very precious point. And I use the word precious because I, I just realized it has been true for me. Uh, and I've never noticed that. It, it is true that when I happen to, you know, find myself trying to explain what I do to people who are not in the field or even they're, they're not working in science, it is true that it kind of worked as like charging the batteries. Because first of all, trying to explain it to someone else, and implicitly you're trying to make it interesting for them, it kind of works on yourself as well a bit. And then when you, when you, if you get the people interested and they start asking you questions, you realize actually, yeah, it is actually quite cool what I'm doing. It's, I think you made a very, very beautiful point. So did I understand correctly what somehow we kind of agreed on? Well, I mean, uh, and as I said, you were suggesting to implement a Steincom course, like as a, as a mandatory course. I was just throwing this idea. I, I didn't like strictly propose, but I was just thinking, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, but in fact, and then I kind of went the opposite way. I said, no, it shouldn't be. But then Eliana and Thomas kind of went in the middle, say, you know what? Yes, it shouldn't be um, mandatory. But then in the, Thomas made a good point. In the undergrad studies where you they teach you many things not all of them you're going to use them actually you're right maybe in that point it might be good to have it mandatory because anyway in the bachelor studies or in the master's studies anyway they teach you courses that they think okay you'll need at least these things to move on but then after the degree you'll make your decision on where to specialize with a phd and stuff so yeah actually that might be a good compromise like you have a psychom course in the undergrad studies where you're just collecting skills and then after the degree you specialize whatever you want to do, you know, PhD and postdoc and whatever. So I think that's that's a that's that's actually a very good a good scenario. At just some point that it it it's gonna be fun. It's guaranteed to be fun because science communication is fun. I agree. This is why science communication can be considered important for scientists. Now, Eliana, why do you think science communication is important for society? Why should people listen to us? This is a, a very good question, and it's actually what got me started in science communication, uh, because I always felt that there is a huge gap uh, between science and uh, the society and scientists and then the general public or everybody anyway. A gap? What, what do you mean a gap? I mean uh, that uh, we have an image of what is a scientist from a very traditional perspective, very male-dominated uh, scientists in books or from movies where it's the person that says a disaster is going to happen, nobody uh, listens, and then the disaster happens. And that's when they realize, oh, we should have listened to the scientists. And that's for me, is, is the gap. We always, uh, like the society, so scientists as a separate group uh, doing uh, their work and then uh, somehow information from them flew, but not directly from the scientists to the society. It flew kind of indirectly through either the government or the news. Um, and so um, 
there is a great deal of loss of information, understanding and detachment. So if you do not come in contact with a scientist, you never realize that he's a person like you. He's not a distant figure doing something you don't understand. And uh, for me, it's important to like bridge this gap. Um, and it's a step often necessary for addressing important societal issues. For example, pandemics, climate change, space sustainability, and the general public was why would I listen to a scientist? And usually that question comes from the fact that they don't know exactly what we do and who we are. So if we as scientists do science communication, we come closer to the public. And uh, that's when we build a bridge uh, between the, the two. So you think like the important part is basically influencing the decision making towards the science so in my opinion, it's not only about influencing decisions. I mean, this is already being done to some extent because most governments have science advisors, um, but it's more about the general public is the one that votes for the people to represent them. And uh, in order to, uh, so they influence in a sense the decision. So from that perspective, it is also a part of um, the better you explain uh, science and you bring it closer to the people, the more they understand it. And therefore, um, the more um, or the better the direction it is to address uh, issues that uh, will affect in the end uh, the people. And if you are an unfamiliar figure, probably portrayed like a crazy person in movies and social media, then um, people might just dis disregard you and not consider you. I think I'm going a bit philosophical here, but yeah, that, that is my opinion. I believe there is a gap between um, science and society. And in order to bridge it, we need to bring both sides closer to, to each other. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it's, in, to put it in very short words, I don't know if, uh, if I misunderstood, but it's making science relatable, scientists relatable as well. People don't listen to words, people listen to people. And I think that, yeah, so I think that it's, it's that. And it's a coming out of that the shadows so where yeah. you have been stuck in when you become a scientist, in a sense. Anastasia, what about you? Why do you think science communication is important? My opinion is probably more like idealistic and maybe naive. But as I mentioned before, to me, science should never be in its own bubble. And uh, as I said before, we do science for people. At least uh, in the field that I work, it's for trying to cure diseases. And, and actually, it doesn't even matter, like cure diseases or inventing something. It's always done for the purpose of either betterment of people's lives or exploring the world around us, which is basically satisfying our general curiosity, which is inherently natural for us as human beings. And so sharing it is just, it's just the way it should be. Like to me, that's as, as simple as, as it is. And it's like a public service that yes. needs to be for everyone. Yes. That's beautiful. I mean, if you think about it, most, not all of it, but most of the research is publicly funded. Everyone is paying for it through the taxes. So I think it's a very fair point that everyone should have the right to benefit from the science and only from the, 
from the discoveries, like we all benefit from new treatments and new invention, but even just like, as Tomas was pointing out, just the, 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 the science for the science sake, like those discoveries that are not necessarily directly useful for a common citizen, but even just the the fascination of it. It's fair that the, the everyone should, should, should benefit it. You know, sometimes when you talk to kids, you start paying attention to things you never thought about because especially like you've been brewing in this thing for this so long that you start taking things for granted so in a way as well i'm not comparing all the listeners now to kids but having this more simplified vision of your work and people with absolutely different perspective because especially if they're not doing science can also make you look at your own work in a very different way and bring some new ideas to you so if you're not doing this you know as as a fun part at least you can consider this as something that can improve your own project and, and develop your new ideas yeah no but i think that you touched into a really important point there i think that science in general, in science communication, or the goal of science, what science communication should be doing is to return the wonder to the world, in a sense. So, like, return the wonder that we, where everything felt new and uh, and that sort of thing when we were uh, kids. Like for me, it's still like that in the sense that we're constantly surrounded by things that are are new that we don't know, and like the cooler things become more complicated. But it's the same principle. And I think that that's a really important thing that science communication needs to do. And when I read about uh, books that are on on topics that I'm not familiar with, uh, or listen to um, to podcasts or videos or anything that is outside what I the domain that I know the most, it's that sort of wonder that that you get from like I had no idea that that worked that way. Um, I had never thought of even this question. Like that is really cool. I would like to understand like how many of us started science for that feeling feeling because I have many people, many friends who, who, you know, for example, the one studying molecular biology and working on cancer. I remember most of them that would say, yeah, no, no, I started science because I wanted to cure cancer. And that's very, it's beautiful. But how many of us actually, this is what I ask you. I'm going to ask all of you. Did you start science because you wanted to treat, you wanted to invent, you had a specific objective or did you start science because you love that feeling of, huh, I did not know that. My case, it was curiosity. Yeah. Eliana? For me, it was more an overall tendency to anything science related that was. Anything. anything yeah, so it okay. and, and, yeah, exactly. And I was getting this feeling of fascination. So every time I would read about dinosaurs, I would get fascinated and I wanted to be a paleontologist. Then I saw a documentary about volcanoes and like volcanologists really going up there to make measurements. And I was like, Oh, wow, that sounds so cool. I want to do that. I want to understand. I want to. So it's it's also it's like the curiosity about science. It's this fascination and, and um, a bit of adrenaline that some scientific research uh, can give you. And I know that in the end, I ended up in science and I'm sitting on a desk. I'm not going on the top of a volcano making measurements. But I still get that uh, fascination because I'm in the space uh, research. Every time we launch a satellite and I saw the launch, I am. Um, even on my screen, I just get excited about it. And that's what brought me to science. Yeah, I was wondering if, you know, you saw a book on dinosaurs and you wanted to become a paleontologist, then you saw a volcano and you wanted to become a geologist. When was it that you went to space and you decided to become a Ah, that, that's my favorite. <laughs> no, no, she my, stared my... at the sun. 
Yeah. Ah, she stayed at the no, sun. Okay, there you go. It wasn't like that. I mean, we all of us or most of us had sat under a starry sky and then be like, oh, what's this? What's that? And then you have someone who is more expert and they say, yeah, that's a planet. That's a star. This is an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> that's Whatever. just a light bulb over there. <laughs> yeah. But so we all get fascinated from that. But that's not what got me into space research when I was the second year of the of uh, high school. I was actually at that time thinking I will become, uh, um, I will do medical research because I also wanted to cure cancer. But then I had a course on astrophysics and I learned so many cool things about stellar objects like neutron stars, supernovas, how stars are born and they die into like a supernova or whatever. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's what I'm gonna be learning from now on. So for me, it so was like becoming an astrophysicist and specializing in space research was um, both the in- interest to do research on that topic, but it was just the continuation of learning about this cool thing. You wanted to know more. You wanted yes, to know I wanted more to about. know more and I wanted at some point to be the one who uh, brings this knowledge out. There you go. Anastasia, what about you? My origin story is more of an outlier. <laughs> okay. Um, you wanted well, to cue mitochondria. To, like in a, in a nutshell, okay. I just came there by accident, honestly. <laughs> How did you end up in, in a lab by accident? I can think well, of not- three different <laughs> locked doors. She was trying to find a toilet and could not, could not. And then it was, there was a microscope in front of her and she couldn't help herself, you know. (laughs) I still remember the day when I already completed my final exams and I sort of knew I I really like biology and chemistry. So it it felt right for me to go. Did did you fill in the wrong ball? Please tell me it was not that. I don't regret it. (laughs) If there's anything I don't regret fitting in this ball. I regret nothing. (laughs) But yeah, I I didn't feel like, like with all the exams that I had, I could go either into medicine, pharmacy. uh, There was one place for pharmacy in my city uh, or go to biology. And honestly, um, seeing a colleague of my teacher doing pharmacy uh, in the pharmacy, (laughs) And then uh, medicine never really attracted me this much. I'm still freaking afraid of needles. Um, So I I just looked at the booklet of uh, biology faculty uh, of my university. And I don't know, we just sold them pretty pictures, I think. Ah, there you go, pretty pictures. Oh, you you get to see all these sea creatures. You'll uh, get to, like, look at microscopes. You'll get to go for um, summer practices. And it felt like an adventure. And maybe maybe the adventure part is something that really drew me in because... uh, it, uh, I know I wouldn't be satisfied with it, with a very routine job, and and this this challenge is is something, and, and sometimes even randomness because I think science is is quite random at times. <laughs> I think we've uh, it's my fault. We drifted off because I wanted to know why you guys ended up in, in doing science, and it looked like no one, none of you was interested in curing cancer. You're horrible people. All of you, including myself, although Eliana went close to it, but then she decided to look at the stars. No, I'm joking, guys. I think it's, it's, it's beautiful. But let's go back to science communication. 
what do you guys wish for the future of science communication? As in, what's the best scenario that you can imagine, you know, when it comes to science communication? Science communication can start using more of like newer technologies that come uh, as it's been happening. On the more practical side, I think that um, newer technologies can can make things more interactive. So it's not, oh, you're seeing just a picture or just a video, but you being able to interact with the thing. So I don't know if you have a- Like hologram. a Psycom video game. Well, that as well. But, but I was more thinking of like, uh, yeah, you can have a hologram, for example, that you, you, you can see, you can turn the earth. You can actually, like in general, being able to, touch and move things it makes like interact them... with the actual piece exactly of exactly it yeah. makes it quote unquote more real um and i think that we can have a big discussion on on that later on the other one that i think that is really cool is the fact that technology can let us go and see things that we we're not able to see before and in more detail so if you see for example um i mean there's the obvious case of space exploration mm-hmm. um of now we can see videos from uh, actual rovers on Mars. On Mars, yes. Yeah. Um, then, and then the other, um, the the other case here here on Earth, you have deep sea exploration, which is if you see pictures of I don't know, like reefs from the seventies or uh, or earlier on with Jacques Cousteau, like they're they were amazing at the time. Everyone was wondering, like, had uh, was amazed by it. Um, they were not great, but now it there was are the 70s. Give them a break. Exactly. No, no, no. no but on. that's my. That is my point. That is exactly my point. Like as technology progresses, like you can see more and more of of stuff that you were not able to see. That is not. It's not that it's. I mean, they are scientific discoveries as well. But I feel that it's more of like you can. The fact that you can see in more detail makes it more real uh in in a sense so it's not just a, a theoretical speculation we can exactly, see it. exactly. it's actually there yeah yeah like there's this youtube channel uh that has videos of deep sea creatures it's it's amazing it's um and the, just just seeing these these creatures it's 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 crazy so like it's, it's really amazing I like the direction Thomas went because I think uh, in the 70s or when those movies with Cousteau were being made, it was more like the fascination, oh, we could go under the sea with cameras and, and, and we have the possibility to see things, which before it was more like something submarines would get the advantage to of di- or divers who were trained to go underwater. But now it's something that it was brought to all of us. So we were all able by sitting on our sofa to actually be looking under the sea by watching our TV. But now it's like, okay, we know we can watch under sea. We want to see things in more detail. And this is what now this modern technology is bringing to us. And we can see all these beautiful creatures and realize like the diversity that is in places we cannot physically or possibly we cannot go. So And we complain when it's not in 4K. Yeah. That's so how spoiled we are. 
exactly so it's like the same as uh, in the past uh when we watched a video it was on a low resolution and we were excited watching a video on youtube and now we have it in higher resolution and when we go back to like click the button of the resolution and go back to what it was 10 15 years ago we're like oh my god how could we watch a video like it that? was basically pixel art yeah basically. <laughs> exactly and it's all like uh first is the excitement oh we could see videos on a laptop screen of what everything and now it's like oh we can see details in these videos of everything so it's the progression of the technology and the it brings different excitement to the people same goes with science as science progresses it brings different excitement to the people eliana what, what about you what's your what's your vision your best scenario for science communication so yeah, for me, the most important thing is to, to start being more engaged with the general public. And I know this is a term that uh, many of us science communicators do not like, um, but I want to be able to have a diverse audience, but at the same time, get this audience involved in the actual research through what we nowadays call citizen science. And there How are- does that work? What are you, what are you talking about? So citizen science is when you have a project and you involve the public in the actual implementation of the, or like execution of the project. For example, there is a citizen science where people look at images of the night sky and they try to identify how many galaxies they see and what types of galaxies they see. And um, now I can't- That's cool. Yeah, how do I sign up for that? I can find the link and we can show it to the general audience. I don't remember remember now the name of the project although I know it very well at the moment I'm getting like this tabula rasa about this but at the same time also here in Finland in the group I am with um, uh, uh, one of our professors with a, a postdoc uh, worked with the pho uh, photographers of Aurora which could be any of us photographing an Aurora and they were sending in the images and uh, th this helped identify a new type of Aurora that was there in the sky have been photographed but it has not been realized that it's actually a different type of aurora formation and how is it formed and so they joined forces uh, with uh, anyone who photographed auroras with good cameras and, and they had this kind of research and I would like to see more of this kind of projects happening uh, and get more engagement uh, with the public. How is the Nobel Prize going to be shared <laughs> in this case? Well, I'm not sure if anyone will get a Nobel Prize for, uh, let's say, what has been done so far, but you never know. So we have a vision of science communication in the future that uses more technology. Then you have a vision that wishes more participation of the people, participation of the non-scientifically trained citizen. Uh, when possible incentive project. So I'm already seeing a beautiful future for science communication. Anastasia, give us the last cherry on the cake. Well, how do you see the future, the best scenario for science communication? Oh, cherry on the cake. Uh, I don't know. I hope I satisfied that criteria. But uh, to me, I'd like scientists and good experts overall to be louder than charlatans, which are very plenty. Uh, outside and like if you just uh, start searching for some uh, scientific facts there's so many websites of fake science and and the, the worst part is that they're 
brilliant at science communication. If anything, I think we should sometimes like make learn tips and, and learn, yeah, something from if them. If only they knew science. <laughs> if only. So yeah, I think that that is one of the most important things for me. And just a little bit also to the side, but still related, is that still for more people to be interested in this, because if you think about it, a lot of people who are able to communicate their science and get all that attention will be the ones to, well, basically get all the cookies in the end. And, and sometimes uh, scientists who are even maybe better uh, as scientists, like, and their work may be even better, but they don't know how to communicate it properly, they will get ignored. So that for me is also one thing is for a scientist to get courage and overcome this fear of communication and maybe some self-doubts that so plenty of us actually have. So these are two cherries on top of the cake. What I'm seeing now in an in, in ideal scenario is a time, a, a period, a planet Earth where scientists are all brave enough and trained to actually communicate better than the charlatans. Possibly they will become the new rock stars, like scientists who bring in an entertaining and clear way the knowledge that humanity is gaining, involving citizens in their experiment so the people are even more receptive to the information because they were involved they were part of it and all this is given using a top-notch technology from both the entertaining uh, industry from the i don't know moving industry even from the scientific industry itself because i can imagine like as you mentioned holograms honestly where do i sign for this future uh, i love that by the way before closing the episode you guys listeners probably have noticed there's a, a new voice in the Science Basement podcast, uh, Anastasia. That's She's me. a new entry in the team. So Anastasia, do you want to say a couple of things about yourself so that people get to know you? I think so far I'm sort of like a jangler of the Science Basement podcast. <laughs> a jangler, yeah. For the reason being that, mm -hmm. uh, well, I started as a transcriber, but currently taking up more tasks. So now throwing up because in the she air. was too efficient at transcribing. So she basically finished all the transcription. Or maybe that's just my restless nature. I don't know. <laughs> so if you know you're now starting to find actual transcripts of our episode, it's all thanks to Anastasia and other members of the team like uh, Kertu and um, yes. Pritakshi. So shout out to the whole transcript transcribers team. We we work in the shadows. The transcription machinery of the Science Basement podcast. Eliana, do you, do you want to introduce your cat to us? Because it's showing up in the meeting. Yes. She is Philly, the science communicator cat. And sometimes she joins me. You podcast listeners can't see the cat. I can assure you it's a very beautiful cat. Okay, I think, I mean, I had lots of fun. But this is it, for now at least. This is the last episode before our summer break. So... Thank you, Leanna. Thank you, Anastasia. Thank you, Tomas, for joining me. Thank you, everyone listening. See you in September. Have nice holidays. I'm Giuliano Di Dio. This was the Science Basement Podcast. See you in the next episode. Bye. 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 The Science Basement. If you like this episode, 
give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.